is Michael Easley in context. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. The Word of God is to be a delight to us. It is to be spiritual food for a spiritual hunger that nothing else in the world can satisfy. It is to teach us about the character and the nature of our God, who He is, what He's like, how He deals with mankind, how He deals with you and me, how He loves us, how He disciplines us. Uh, Not with the impact only of being better sinners, but being more like Jesus Christ. It is about the person and work of Christ's life. It is that He came born to die that we might live, and we grow and we imitate and we become more like him through the power of his word, the power of his spirit. We've considered the authority of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, how we got the Bible, the clarity of it, the necessity of it, the truthfulness of it. And Lloyd, Bill, and I and Rob have taken some different tangents depending on what we were talking on about internal evidence, how the Bible cooperates the Bible with itself, how things outside the Bible will often cooperate the Bible. To give you a picture, that this book you hold is otherworldly. And yes, it's in English for us English readers, but it is the very Word of God, and He's delivered it to us through His prophets, through His apostles, and now we hold it in our hands. We want to talk today about the exclusivity of the gospel, that the Word of God presents us with the exclusivity of the gospel. Since God, after he spoke in many times, in many ways, in many portions, through prophets, through apostles, the different writers, as the author of Hebrews says, in the last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So how do we understand that he's spoken to us in his Son, and the word that we have presents the gospel, this good news, as exclusive? Now, depending on our Christian environment, how we grew up, how long you've been around a church, how long you've been around this church or other churches in your background, you may have a different experience. But for many of us, when we talk about growing up Christian or knowing Christ, we learn somewhere along the way that salvation is by no other name than Jesus Christ. That to know Christ, to trust Christ, and Christ alone is the bedrock of our salvation. And that's fundamental to our faith. It's the only way we are saved. Um, philosophical and theological differences uh, have raged for centuries, and they will continue to rage. And this continues to permeate not only the seminaries and the denominations, but even so-called evangelical fundamental Bible-believing churches. I have a theory that Christian groups never list to the right. They always drift to the left. Organizations never become more conservative the older they get. Seminaries, Bible colleges, they always go left. They always go liberal. Not talking politics, talking liberal in their thinking. So Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Andover seminaries were schools, ministerial schools, that began to train men to be preachers and pastors and teachers and scholars. All of them became liberal universities, and very few of them have any vestige of Christianity or a belief in the Bible left. A friend of mine is uh, on staff at um, Princeton, where B.B. Warfield, the library of B.B. Warfield is to this day. And uh, he is an evangelical Presbyterian, uh, like an IV or RUF or crusade person on staff at this group. It's, it's funded and endowed up there. And uh, he gave me a tour of Princeton years ago. And we went to B.B. Warfield's library. He goes, Michael, we have between two and 400 college students in Warfield's library uh, once a week. And I get to teach them. And my mouth was hanging open. He says, you know, we have everything here at Princeton except God. That was once a school that was established to train ministers. 
So organizations always go to the left. Does that make sense? So the danger of any church, and the fact that fellowship churches even exist, is evidence that churches moved away from this being the inerrant, true, inspired, revealed word of God to man. And that we take it not only at face value, but we believe in what he said we want to think about exclusivity today. So as philosophies and challenges come to the scripture, churches subtly buy it. Teachers, pastors, elders, leaders subtly and quietly buy it, and it happens very consistently. Open your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The net Bible renders that he is to be uh, commended to hell. The word is anathema. He needs to be commended to hell. If, if he changes, if he corrupts the gospel that we gave to you, Galatians, it'd be better off for him to be cursed to hell than to change that gospel. I want to give you five terms. It's a little bit of a Sunday school classroom this morning. I'm going to give you five words as we frame this discussion this morning. You might want to write a note, or you might want to take a nap. won't offend me either way. I'm well beyond it. The first is the word pluralism. Pluralism. Pluralism means that every religion is true. All religions are true. Each provides some encounter with what some of them call the ultimate. So pluralism has a lot of fans. John Hick it was a great evangelical fundamental scholar who became a pluralist in his own making. He became a leading Oxford scholar, taught in Birmingham in the U.K., a brilliant man, produced a prolific amount of literature in the academic world. He passed away in 2012. He writes, I have found that people of other world religions are in general on a different, are not on a different moral or spiritual level from Christians. The basic ideal of love and concern for others and of treating them as you would wish them to treat you is in fact taught by all the great religious traditions. That's a long way of saying the golden rule. Treat others as you want to be treated. What Hick concluded was that all religions say the same thing. That's pluralism. Now, Hick's study is certainly flawed at many levels, and I don't want to make light of his scholarship or his prowess, but he, he misses that some religions exterminate other religions. Um, but nevertheless, pluralism is the idea that every religion is true. Second is relativism. Relativism. Relativism states that there's no way to tell if a religion is true. So we talk about a morally relativistic culture. What's true for you? How do we know? And so relativism is the idea that there's no way to tell if a religion is true. Pluralism, they're all true. Relativism, we can't be sure which ones. Thirdly, inclusivism. Inclusivism says that there's one religion that is explicitly true. But other people of other religions, if they live that religion well... They could be migrated into that religious system. Inclusivism. You're included. Think of it that way. Inclusivism. Inclusivism, grant, God might grant salvation to a person. If they're sincere in their faith, they're worshiping God in a very different way, but they're good in that 
order. So we would say, for example, a person who's Hindu, if they really live as a great Hindu and they follow the precepts well and they believe it earnestly, that they could be uh, included in this other true religion. It's taught a lot in religion departments in university settings that where it's inclusive. That you hold to your faith, I hold to mine, and we're, it's all inclusive. There's one that's probably right, but God's big enough, the great ultimate is big enough where he will include you. Fourthly is universalism. Universalism. And this is interesting because as the word sounds, it's that all religions, regardless of what you believe, are good. And that all people will go to heaven or Erewhon or Nirvana or whatever it's called. So universalism, everybody's going to be happy and saved in the end. That God's a benevolent being and he's merciful to all. The funny part where universalism breaks down is universalism believes that everybody's going to go to heaven, we would say, unless you're exclusivist. <laughs> so if you're Islam or if you're biblical Christianity or whatever, you can't fit on the umbrella of universalism because you hold to an exclusive faith, exclusivism. Make sense? So it's, it's kind of a conundrum. We're universalists so long as you agree with us. But if you agree too differently that only your way is that way, which also is the current day of tolerance and intolerance, the way that war is argued, is we get to be intolerant of, intolerant of everything, but if you're intolerant of anything, you're therefore intolerant of all things, which is where the convoluted logic and philosophy people love this stuff. Fifth and last is exclusivism. Exclusivism. There's only one true religion. All others are not merely wrong, they're false. They're in error. So we have pluralism. All religions are true. Each one has some encounter with the ultimate. There's relativism that um, there's lots of different ways. Um, no way to tell which one is actually right. Inclusivism where they're all explicitly grandfathered in as long as you're sincerely under the right one. So the Catholic Church would be an illustration of that. In the Vatican II, prior to that, Catholics, you had to be a Roman Catholic, a member, or you could not have an opportunity to go to heaven. After Vatican II, they tweaked it a little bit, and they essentially said, very simple synthesis of one thing they said was, well, you could probably get to heaven if you're a good Protestant, but it'd be better if you were a Catholic. So that's an inclusivistic view of some of the Catholics where they look at others. Universalism that all are true, all are good, unless you're exclusivistic, and then last, exclusivism. Now, why do we want to talk about this? Great question. You and I need to be very clear about what the gospel is. Um, Paul said if we teach a different gospel, it'd be better that we were condemned to hell. So we must needs be very clear, not only what Rob and Bill and Lloyd and I teach, but what you understand, what you believe, and if you're a part of fellowship, that you understand the box you're checking metaphorically as well as literally. Dr. Gary Phillips, who's a teacher at Bryan College in Tennessee and pastor of Signal Mountain Church, has written a great article about inclusivism. And in part, he writes and asks the question, is truth absolute or relative? If truth is relative, then the Bible's claim that Jesus died on the cross and the Koran's claim that Jesus did not die on the cross can both be true. That's relativism. If I say it's pouring down rain outside, and in fact the sun is shining, only one of those can be right. Relativism says they're both correct. 
And this may sound a little heady, but it's very practical as we start getting into the nitty-gritty. Aristotle had a thing called the law of non-contradiction. And for centuries, philosophers and theologians all agreed that two truths that said the same thing, one of them had to be wrong. One was not true. It's either pouring down rain outside right now or it's not. There's no, you know, it's not misting. I'm using it, pouring down rain. It's one or the other. So if you're to walk out right now, you go, it's not raining outside, Michael. That's the law of non-contradiction. Well, philosophers and theologians, through that, they jettisoned Aristotle's law out the window. And this is when everything began to unbraid in the mind of philosophy teachers and so-called scholars as they wrote about these universally accepted, self-evident ideas that now all bets are off. And that's where we get the language in your high school or junior high kids says, well, it's, it's how you were made. It's whatever you believe. It's what you want to be. It's what's your identity. That language is a reductionistic view of the law of non-contradiction. Either it's black or it's white, or it's navy or it's gold, or it's white or it's gold, or it's black or it's blue. <laughs> Perfect illustration. Increasingly pluralistic world slides into evangelicalism. Some of you remember Mother Teresa's comment a few years ago that blew up the world. She said, there is only one God, and he is God to all. Sounds good so far. Therefore, it is important that everyone is seen as equal before God. I've always said that we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, a Catholic become a better Catholic. Now, she moved from exclusivism in that statement to a hybrid of inclusion and pluralism. She said, there's only one God, and he is God to all. We agree with that. Therefore, it's important everyone be seen as equal before God. We sort of agree with that. But we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim. No, see, now we're in inclusivism. And the world listened to her because of the humanitarian effort she did, unparalleled perhaps in all history. And they looked at what she did in Calcutta and they said, well, of course, she's the hands and feet of Jesus. No, she's the hands and feet of great social work. She's the hands and feet of hospice, of people that are dying. She's an altruistic, wonderful, well-intentioned person caring for people who are dying and very sick. But does she understand that there's exclusively one Christ, one gospel, one way? Denominations have long shifted this. This is probably why you are in some way or shape or form in an independent church-like fellowship, because the denominations moved. I've met some friends recently from uh, Nashville. They've lived here 50 years, and they've uh, given me a great education on Nashville's history. 50 years ago, quite a different place. And they are members of a denomination I won't name. And they're sneaking over to fellowship uh, from time to time. Because, quote, we love the Bible teaching, close quote. And they told me uh, at lunch a couple of weeks ago, we are part of an apostate church. I said, well, why are you still there? We laughed about it. They've been there 50 years, that's why. It's hard to leave 50 years of relationships, 50 years of, of connections. And being very involved in that church that they were part of. In the 80s and 90s, this became popularized. Some of you might have read Christianity Today or Moody Monthly or those kind of magazines. And this was the slide going on. Is, was the gospel exclusive or not? And many scholars who came out of an evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing background started to shift their thinking with titles like, Is Belief in Christ Necessary for Salvation? 
What about those who have never heard? Have they no hope? And we start opening these seemingly logical questions. They categorize people that haven't heard the gospel as the untold. Well, would God relegate the untold to hell? What if the untold lived in a village, much like we saw earlier on a video, and they never got God's word in their language? And if that untold people group never heard the exclusive gospel, would God send them to hell? What kind of God would do that? Now we start changing the character of God. It's also a false argument. Because God's not relegating anybody to hell. God's not sending people to hell. We are all going to hell on a freight train without a break. Mankind, humanity, there's no, not one who's done right. We're all sinners. All have turned aside. All of us deserve hell. The fact that he should save any is the remarkable thing. But the arguments become switched, and there's an emotional pull. We say, well, that makes sense. I mean, God wouldn't send people who never had an opportunity to hear Christ. He wouldn't send them to hell. If you phrase the question that way, it does start to create doubt. But we are reminded what Scripture says, not what man says. We're all deserving of hell. There's none righteous, no, not one. That he would save any is a remarkable thing. Whenever we create the exceptional question to the answer, we're in trouble. Whenever you make law based on exceptions, you're in trouble. You make a law that's generally applicable to all things. Scripture is the same way. Scripture is generally morally applicable. Yes, there are questions that are going to perplex us until we die. Here's the thing. Some of your why questions are never going to be answered. Some of my why questions are never going to be answered. And to think that they should be makes us out to be God. What about babies that die? God is not, would he send a baby to hell because that baby never was old enough to believe? I fall on the mercy of God and on two key passages where David's son dies. And he prays and petitions and the servants ask him. And he says, um, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. It's a cryptic phrase, but David knew theology well. And my sense is David understood that boy was in Christ, we would say, in Christ's presence which is why the Renaissance artist had all these little baby angels. The cherubs were fat baby angels. Why? Well, the, my little angel died, and he or she's an angel now. There's a lot of romantic nature in our, in our literature as well as in our paintings that try to explain the human condition. We talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. It raises the hair on the back of our neck sometimes. It's not just that we say the gospel is exclusive. It's we say if you don't believe this, you are indeed in error. You are apart from Christ. Or to be very blunt, you will spend eternity in hell. And that's where the uh, Western notion of fairness starts to take over our hearts. To go, well, God wouldn't do that. No, man's done it. Precondition. Man is in a sin condition. You and I are already seated with cancer. We're dying. Someone has to save us. The lack of clarity in the gospel, what we believe about the gospel, will lead to danger. Not only danger in preaching, um, Christ will hold those of us who stand in front of any group and teach them accountable for what we teach. James warns not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment. There will be an assessment of what you say and do and how you tell other people to live. It's a scary thing to stand up and tell people what God says. And so when it comes to the gospel, we want to be very clear. Let me give you three propositions about salvation, and we'll look at a couple of passages briefly. Three propositions. Number one, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Turn over in your Bible to John chapter 3. 
verse 18. This, of course, is the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Most of us know verse 16, perhaps the most well-known verse on the planet. John 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. One more time. He who believes in him is not judged. If you have trusted Christ, you believed in Christ, you are no longer judged. You've passed out of judgment. Jesus continues, he who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We love John 3.16, but rarely have we spent time on John 3.18. We're all in a judged position going to hell. But once you trust Christ, once you believe in Christ, that judgment has passed, Jesus says here. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already. Jesus Christ is pretty exclusive here. Number one, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. He taught it. His followers believed it. His followers in the apostolic teaching, what we read in the New Testament, will teach the same thing, and it becomes a consistent theme. Number one, Jesus is the only way. Number two, Christ's work on the cross is imputed to any sinner by faith. Christ's work on the cross is imputed to any sinner. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin. Christ was sinless to be sin on our behalf. You'll often hear us pray that Christ died in our place on our behalf instead of us. That's also called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He died in our place, so we didn't have to die there. On our behalf, for us, instead of us, so we didn't have to go through that crucifixion experience. He died for us, and he makes us righteousness. Um, the word imputed is, is rendered a lot of ways in your Bibles. Reckoned is one of the ways Paul, uh, the English Bible's use this word. But the idea of imputation is simply this. If your bank account today, let's say your bank account is $8,700 and change, and uh, someone was to put $10 million in your account without you knowing it, and you went to the bank uh, Monday or Tuesday to make a deposit, and they give you the balance, you went, wait a minute, I, I knew I had $8,700 and change, but $10 million? Well, it's in your account. Well, can you verify it? Sure, it's in your account. It was imputed. Someone made a deposit, reckoned it to your account. What Paul is saying in this passage is that because of Christ dying for your sin and mine in our place, that his righteousness is imputed to you and me. So it's not just that we are as if we never sinned, justification. It is though Christ has declared us righteous, he's made us righteous, and when God looks at us through the work of Christ, that imputed righteousness has come to us. It's a big, thick, long way of simply saying that Christ's death is the work of the cross is what makes it possible for that righteousness to come to you and me. It's not what we do. It's not what church we belong to. It's not the good works we, we act in after we're saved. It's what Christ has done for the believer in Christ. Christ's work on the cross imputed to any believer will be saved. And last, thirdly, salvation requires that a person put his or her faith or trust in Jesus Christ in this life. 
And we have to add that because much of this progressive theology is not now they talk about open theism and what others would call a second chance redemption, that after you die you have another chance. I mean, what if a person never had a chance to hear the gospel? Michael, wouldn't God give them one more chance after they died to be sure? No. In this life only. That's why it's so important that we have a clear gospel. Salvation requires that a person put their faith in Christ in this life or they will face eternal damnation in the life to come. Third proposition, salvation requires that a person trust in Christ and Christ alone or they will face eternal damnation. Uh, many of the this shift in pluralism, uh, some of you may know the name John Stott. I've uh, read many of Stott's books, a brilliant theologian. have lots of his books on my shelves. In his later years, he moved to progressivism, and he adopted the doctrine of annihilation. In fact, many evangelicals are adopting the doctrine of annihilation, that when people die, they don't go to hell and are tormented forever, that God annihilates them because he's a merciful God. Sounds very, it gets to our pathos. We like that idea. It sounds better than eternally punishment, eternal punishment. But it goes against the nature of God. It goes against the nature that he made man in his image. Man is an eternal being. See, the only difference between a believer and an unbeliever is where you spend eternity. Because we are made in the image of God, we will live forever. It's location and with whom. That's the cold, hard truth of Scripture. See, in a modern culture that's pluralistic and inclusive and tolerant, they abhor that. We're idiots to think that. Um, we have one very loud religious group. Certainly it's in factions and it's in extremist language, if you want to say it, but Islam in any of its form believes the same thing. If you don't convert to Islam, you will forever be an infidel and you will go to hell. Only those who are Muslim will be saved in their view of, not only their view of theology, but their view of eternal life. Judaism, before Christianity comes along, holds to the same thing. A monotheistic God, one heaven, only one people group will be in heaven, those who are rightly related to Jehovah, to Yahweh. They missed the redemption of Christ, but they're still holding out. They have 90% of the evidence that it's got that 10% mixed up at the end. Last passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's the exclusiveness of the gospel? Lots of places we could look at. John 10 would be another one we could look at, but I thought we would end here. And Paul essentially says in this paragraph, it's probably the clearest place to look at what's the gospel, in my opinion. Chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, and in which you now stand, by which you are also saved. Each one of these verbs is a great study for those of you Bible students. I preached, you received, you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ, number one, died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he, number two, was buried, and that, number three, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So four times we have the appearance there. Why is that important? It's the life, death, burial that he lived 
that he died. The burial confirms his death. That's a very important part of the gospel, that he died and was buried, but then he appears. And the appearances are proof that he was resurrected from the dead. And the progression is notable. He appears to Cephas, to the twelve, more than 500 brethren at one time, then James, all the apostles, then ultimately he appears uh, to, to Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, and on it goes. Verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believe. Now, if Christ is preached, that he's been raised from the dead. How do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So now he's tackling for Corinth what would be the issue about was Christ fully raised for them? What's the issue today? Is Christ the only way? Is the gospel exclusive? He lived. He died. His burial confirms his death. He's resurrected and appears to people. That proves his power over death. Drop down to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitied. Paul will go on to talk about if there's no resurrection, we're fools to believe any of this. The gospel is exclusive in nature. He lived, he died, he was buried. He died in your place, in my place, on our behalf, instead of us, to take our sins away. He atoned for your sins and mine on Calvary. His burial confirms his death. His resurrection confirms his power over life. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit to indwell you the moment you trust in Christ. That's the exclusive nature of the gospel. If we had uh, a thousand treatments for cancer that you could experience, from traditional chemotherapy to all sorts of alternative approaches. And some of them had 60% success rates, 80% success rates, 20% success rates. And if you've been down this road, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You study the treatments and you decide which treatment you're going to do. And you go down this treatment road. Doctors don't know everything. They know a lot. I'm, I'm thankful for them. But they, they're not omniscient. And every patient's different. Cancer is, by nature, a unique disease because it changes all the time. There's not one cancer. There's countless cancers. And so because they change, they're hard to treat. And treatments don't always work the way they intend, and they make you incredibly sick. Chemo is trying to kill you almost. Let's kill all the cancer in your body and try to barely keep you alive. And if you can survive that, we'll see if you can come back to life without cancer. That's what chemo essentially is doing to your body. So we have all these treatment options, and you get to pick which one. And there's one person over here saying, I have a treatment for cancer. It works 100% of the time. All you have to do is believe this, and I will solve your spiritual cancer. And people believe it, their cancer is gone. How intolerant of all those other treatments? How intolerant of chemotherapy? How intolerant of the altruistic, homeopathic, alternate uh, grass and green and vegan lifestyle? How unkind to those people that have spent their whole life working to cure cancer but only get 20% success rate? How intolerant can you be to all those other treatment processes? We're all dying. One promises eternal life. 
Christ, the gospel. It's so intolerant to say the gospel is exclusive. If that's the way you want to look at it, then you're going to be confined to looking at it the way the world has sold you a bill of goods, that God's not fair. If God was fair, he'd send us all to hell. All of us. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. But God's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's not willing for any to go to hell. God would that we would all come to know Christ. He doesn't delight. He's not capricious. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked because they're made in the image of God. And he sent his one and only son to die in our place on our behalf instead of us. So have you trusted in Christ and Christ alone? Do you know that you know that you know that you know? He loves you. He died for your sins. He makes the one and only provision for your sins. That's his life, death, burial, resurrection. And by trust, by belief, by simply putting your faith in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, he gives you a free gift called eternal life. What's the problem? Why do we get defensive of that? Why do we worry we're not being inclusive? Why do we worry we're not being tolerant? Why do we worry what the world thinks about that from a philosophical angle? The issue is their heart and their soul condition and their eternal life is in jeopardy because they don't know. They don't know what you hold in your hand. If you don't know Christ, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus Christ because that is the centerpiece of this church is the gospel. That he lived, he died, he was buried, and he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at Dr. Easley. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley In Context.